We go ahead, we do the pitch. The pitch went really well, by the way. I believe they've won the business. However, once we invoice them for the work, which, you know, was significantly more than we'd build them in prior periods, but, you know, the demand on our sources or our resources was really high. And so unfortunately, or fortunately for us, bad for them, apparently, the bill was much more than they'd expected. And as a result, they sort of ghosted us. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Valuation Masterclass Online, the complete, proven, step-by-step course to guide you from novice to valuation expert. Podcast listeners can claim your amazing 35% discount by going to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Ryan Rogar. Ryan, are you ready to rock? You know I am, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to have you on. In fact, we just had a really nice conversation prior to this, which I really appreciate. And I want to introduce you to the audience and to my mother because she's listening right now. Hi, Mom. Hi, Mom. All right. <laughs> All right. Ryan is a serial entrepreneur, award-winning creative director, podcaster, author, and business owner committed to building authentic end-to-end relationships with his clients, top management to top consumer. His unique philosophy puts specific importance on human relationships and then their inherent value in both business and in life. And ladies and gentlemen, that's something that we oftentimes forget. He believes that as a society, we are reaching a kind of technological saturation point, which is leaving consumers anxious and yearning for tactile human experiences. And it is that core ethic that fuels his purpose to bring people together. From his office in Salt Lake City, Utah, or occasionally from his office away from home in Barcelona, Spain. Oh my gosh, I've never been there. Now I've got a reason to go. Ryan will offer enlightening insights on a huge range of topics in his humorous and engaging style. Relationships, business, design, art, creativity, marketing, podcasting, remote work, co-working, the music business, travel, and life of a digital nomad. Ryan has lived and studied them all, and he is happy to share his insights and experiences to help others explore fresh perspectives on business, lifestyle, and new ways of working. Ryan, take a moment and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Will do. Geez, I don't know. I should, I should probably make that bio a little less fluffy. Like, I, I don't know if I can live up to that thing. So anyway, yeah, no, as you said, that's, I mean, basically the, the skinny a uh, couple more little tidbits, things not in the normal bio. I'm a father of two, got a couple boys, happily married here. We're uh, out of the Salt Lake City office today. In addition to my company, R2, which is our marketing and advertising company, we have another operation that we've just kicked off called Teammate Apart, which is a uh, resource for remote workers and those who hire them to help them better work together. And so, yeah, so we spend a lot of time in remote work advocacy, marketing, design, all those kinds of worlds. So Exciting. pleased to be here. Exciting. Well, we're glad to have you on. And we may have to take that audio clip of that introduction and you can play that before you go on stage to talk to the world about you. <laughs> I, I agree. But again, God, I'm just going to run into this problem where I'm just not sure I can live up to it. So we'll see well, how I do. We'll see how well, I do. We'll, well reassess that, at the end. That's the good news about my worst investment ever podcast is that it's all about messing up. So don't worry for a moment. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> all right. Perfect. 
All right, so now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Sure. So in our business, in our marketing advertising company, our two, we, we spend a lot of time working for a lot of different clients from Fortune 500 level clients all the way down to mom and pop shops. And we, you know, sort of service each of them, you know, a lot of different industries, things like that. And, and one aspect of this ongoing work that we do is, you know, of course, finding new business. That's a big aspect of, of trying to run a marketing agency is finding new work all the time. So, you know, over the course of the last 20 years while I've been doing this, I've become pretty good at sniffing out good clients versus bad clients, things like that. You know, there's some telltale signs of the guys that aren't going to pay or the ones that will. You know, just recently, actually just last year, and, and even though it's, I don't know, I feel a little bit vulnerable even talking about it because after so much time in business, I feel kind of stupid to have made this mistake because it's kind of a rookie mistake, really. Well, welcome um, to the community. <laughs> Here in our community, we know that risk and taking risk and losing is part of success. So don't worry about it for a moment. Well, it's so true. And, and that's the thing. And that's actually why, you know, I'm grateful to have the story to share with you guys, because, you know, when I, I first got the invitation to come on the show, immediately my head went to financial investments or stocks or things like that. And I was like, golly, I just don't know if I've got a great story like that. You know, I mean, my, my investment level is very low and, you know, the risk is very low. So I lose very little. <laughs> and so, so it's not a very sexy story. But in the case of this client, we, we had the opportunity, you know, right now, legislation here in the States is changing really rapidly as it pertains to CBD and medical marijuana and things like that. And we took on a CBD client. We had never worked in the space before and weren't really sure how it was going to go. The company that came to us seemed reputable enough. They didn't really balk at our rates or anything like that. We felt pretty good about it. And so we went ahead and, and took them on after a couple different interviews and sort of working with their leadership. We felt good about taking them on as a client. And, you know, when we took them on, everything sort of seemed pretty smooth, you know, smooth sailing for a little bit. You know, we did quite a bit of work for them. They were paying on time. Everything was good. We were, we were totally good. And then at some point we made a decision to make a big packaging change and they were going to switch over all their packaging. And, you know, we were up against a deadline. I, I don't want to name the chains that they were pitching to, but there were some, some really large, you know, pharmacies and, you know, big name brand, home, home name brand kind of companies that this company, our client was going to be pitching to, to try and get their new CBD products out, in, out into the market. And so in a bind, you know, we've got like few days until this pitch, all this stuff, we've got to get all the packaging changed out, get everything done. So, you know, at this point, we have a great relationship with this client. So we sort of throw everything at it, including the kitchen sink. We send, you know, we've got copywriters writing, we've got designers designing, we've got web developers developing, we've got the whole thing going just to try and build up this whole campaign and be prepared for this, you know, what, what could amount to a, you know, multi, multi-million dollar sale. And so we go ahead and do that, you know, obviously at the same time as running up, you know, running all these resources, we're also running up the bill. And, you know, it's a, you know, take significant investment to do that much work that quickly and throw that many hands at it. And so we go ahead, we do the pitch. The pitch went really well, by the way, I believe they've won the business. However, once we invoice them for the work, which, you know, was significantly more than we'd build them in prior periods, but, you know, the demand on our sources or our resources was really high. And so unfortunately, or fortunately for us, bad for them, apparently, the bill was much more than they'd expected. And as a result, they sort of ghosted us. And so we took that, you know, I mean, in this business that happens. So I didn't spend a lot of time crying about it. But what I think is a great learning moment for a lot of people is, you know, 
the one thing that I felt from the beginning, and and you know, I did a couple sales interviews with with stakeholders in the company, but it wasn't. Eventually, I met the CEO, and when I met the CEO, I immediately had this I don't know sort of sensation, this gut, this intuition, you know, sort of about the guy, about the guy's character, you know. And I don't know him. I don't know him very well. Even now, I don't know him real well, but you know, you just sort of had that feeling, this vibe, right? And so I looked the other way. I sort of went against what, you know, nature was telling me or whatever this, you know, thing is, was telling me. And I went ahead and pursued the relationship anyway. Part of that was, you know, as advertising business goes, we ebb and flow a lot. We were ebbing at the time and we needed a win. So we were a little bit maybe blinded by some desperation. You know, we got bills Mm. to pay, we got people to pay, we got all this stuff. So, you know, maybe that's one check mark that we'll overlook because we've got to get paid. But, you know, nonetheless, because we were lured in a little bit by desperation, we were brought into a situation that maybe otherwise I wouldn't have been brought into. And as a result, we ended up getting totally hosed in this deal. Client never paid, leaving us basically on the hook for about twenty-five dollars to $35,000. And it was a pretty significant investment in our manpower and resources. And obviously, we because we'd front-loaded, to get this project done on time for them. We, mm. you know, brought in all these people and had everybody working on it and burning all these hours and spending all this time. And at the end of the day, you know, the client just walked away. So, you know, we've got sort of a, I guess, like a plan of attack for when that happens, right? Because it does in, yeah. in advertising, people will walk away sometimes or, you know, maybe they didn't make back the money they'd hoped to make, you know, versus what they spent. And for whatever reason, they decide in their mind, it's okay not to pay for the services. Mm. You know, and I, I imagine this is something very common in service industries in general, you know, in this case, it's advertising and marketing, but it may as well be plumbing or hanging Christmas lights or whatever. It could be anything. But in this particular situation, we started chasing down our options, which were few. So one of the things when we went back and sort of revisited this relationship is that it had come on kind of quickly. These guys were referred to us through a trusted resource through a close friend, somebody we knew, and he sent a lot of work our way. And as a result, we didn't follow our processes in in client onboarding. So we didn't, I mean, even though we have rules, we didn't follow them. We just quickly jumped on their projects and went right to work. So we didn't have contracts in place. We didn't have any kinds of agreements out there. We also didn't set any deposit rules or anything like that. You know, normally we will require generally as much as 100% down before we engage in a client with somebody that's sort of sight unseen, right? But these guys came in by way of a friend and we felt comfortable just going to work. So we did. And, you know, we weren't proven wrong for like a little while. So we, we didn't feel bad about our decision until it really burnt us. And, mm. um, but by the time it did, our options were few. And, and we've been told, you know, because we not only did we not have these contracts and things, but we did go pursue, you know, legal options, collections, things like that. And, you know, we had lawyers telling us that, well, we can chase it down, but without contracts, without anything else in place, we're going to spend in legal fees what we were going to make back anyway. So we may as well just wash our hands of it. You know, same thing. I mean, even with a contract, a lot of times they still can't really compel someone to pay. Mm. So as a contractor, you know, not having these safety safeguards in place, the contracts, the agreements, the deposits, things like that, skin in the game, we really exposed ourselves to the situation. And so we were, you know, I guess wide open for abuse and there was very little we could do about it in the end. I'm curious, how did that, how are the interactions within the company? That can be a really painful time when, particularly when you really say, I need this client, we need this money, we want to do this job and then holy crap, they're not paying. And then that puts a lot of tension on people inside the company. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it totally acts as a, as a multiplier, right? I mean, we were desperate before, but now we've got all this extra debt, you know, we've got all these extra, you know, mouths that we need to feed because we rose to the occasion to service the needs of this client. And as a result, now we've got the money, you know, the, the rears or the, you know, the problems that we were having financially prior compounded by the new problems of now we've got these extra people to pay. And so, yeah, for us, it was, it was, devastating. You know, I mean, it's mm-hmm. for a lot of companies, you know, 20 grand, 30 grand, maybe isn't that impactful, but for a small agency like ours, it can be a crushing and, blow. Yeah, it's huge. And, you know, and luckily I'm proud to say we recovered no problem. We picked up mm. some new business that took place up, you know, repaired the situation. We were able to basically, you know, we had a big enough win afterwards that we were able to get square again and get some money back in the bank and sort of yep. get back on our feet a little bit. But yeah, I mean, not everybody gets that. So there are plenty mm-hmm. of people that get this desperate moment, something bad like this happens. And then, you know, even if it's not malicious, or maybe they just don't get a check cut on time, or somebody's on vacation, and you're in this position of desperation, the extension of yourself, when you're not in a good situation, you know, is definitely a major problem. And for us led to, you know, a lot of sleepless nights. Exactly. That leads to another cycle of, you know, emotional and physical stress and all that. So let's go through and try to kind of list out the lessons that you learned from this. Sure. So, and I touched on them a little bit as I was rambling on there, but basically, you know, some of the biggest things, and this would go for entry-level contractors, service providers, all the way up to, you know, much larger companies. And hopefully by the time you're a bigger company, you'll have solved these problems. But for younger people, especially people new to the service industries and things like that, I mean, number one is contracts and agreements, you know, have some sort of service agreement in place and maybe to even take a step backwards, it's processes more than it is anything else. Mm -hmm. And so as a, as a process included in, you know, maybe your client onboarding process, you ought to have contracts and agreements in place. The finances and everything need to be figured out in advance. For creative people, like in our industry, you know, deposits are a really common way of getting some skin in the game. Usually you'll ask for half down, half on completion, or payment on certain milestones, things like that. There's different mm-hmm. ways of doing it. No ways, well, I mean, there's probably varying opinion on which ways are the right ways, but there's different ways the contractors and freelancers handle this kind of stuff. Having contracts and agreements in place, however, you know, dictates the rules and explains what happens you know, in a situation like this. So, I mean, let's say that your client doesn't pay, you know, at least you would have the recourse to go to a claims court or go to, you know, a factoring company or a mitigation company or something and explain to them, look, I have the signed agreement that says that on termination or if they walk away, X, Y, and Z happens. And so at least you have some ground to stand on. In the case of these guys, as I said, because they came through referral and they came through some other channels that got them past our, our sort of onboarding process. We didn't have any of those things in place. And so even if we had gone to court, it would have been a lot of he said, she said kind of stuff. And, you know, mighty hard to come out ahead that way. Mm. So I think that's probably one of the biggest takeaways is contracts and agreements, having those things set up in advance, yep. risk mitigation by way of deposits, or other modalities, whether it's IP ownership, things like that, you know, could be other safeguards in this situation. But I think maybe the biggest takeaway or the the most important factor, and it's something that is difficult to articulate because it's intangible, but it's this idea of, you know, the almighty gut, you know, or your personal intuition, conscience, you know, whatever you want to call it. Most of us have some sense in us, you know, when you meet a person, a lot of times you you'll make some 
deductions. You know, your, your body mm -hmm. or the subconscious part of your brain is looking at this person and identifying characteristics or, you know, whatever it is, but it's basically formulating some sort of system based on a set of life experiences that, you know, will determine how you feel about a person. Sometimes, you know, a person will walk into the room and the whole place will light up and you'll, you'll feel great about them. It doesn't mean that they're not a used car salesman. No offense to used car salesmen. Mm. You know, it's not to say that that person couldn't be bad, but they have some set of characteristics or something that makes you, your gut, you know, feel good mm. about it. Mm. In this case, or in the case of this particular client, I had been, or negotiated our whole arrangement with a stakeholder, number two in the company. And our relationship seemed great, everybody cool, you know, didn't feel bad about the situation. It wasn't until I actually met the number one guy in the company that I started to have kind of a, a little bit of hesitation, but by then we were already engaged. Right. And, you know, during the time we were working with them, I would come home from work, I'd talk to my wife and I'd be like, God, you know, I just don't feel great about him. I, you know, and, and, you know, at that point the other boot hadn't dropped, but mm. it wasn't that big a surprise when it did. And so I guess, you know, the moral of the story here, if I was trying to button down this last little piece is just sort of, you know, trust your gut, trust your intuition, listen to your conscience, things like that. And I suppose based on your risk tolerance, you may be able to make a judgment call whether to disregard or whether, you know, how much credence you're going to give to your internal monologue. Hmm. But I, I think it would be a real error to just outright ignore your intuition or your gut. And in the case of this, you know, or in my situation, having followed my gut or taking these bad feelings that I had sort of towards the leadership of this company and, you know, excusing ourselves from the situation probably would have been the better call. So let's just bring it down to that one piece of actionable advice, just one. And based upon what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn in business, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? And let's focus in on a man or woman out there that's in financial struggle and they got an opportunity and they're kind of skipping their processes and there's that intuition, but there's also that pull like we need this. What is the yeah. one thing? you would tell them to do? Well, and I think it's one thing, but it's not an easy decision or it's a complex decision, even though it, it is still ultimately one thing. I think ultimately it's true. Trust your intuition, trust your gut, trust your feeling about the situation. But I think to that end or to sort of, you know, I guess make that choice to be able to trust your intuition, you've got to weigh all these other factors, right? You've got to, I mean, of course, you know, financial desperation is one thing, you know, family situation is another, work situation is another. I mean, you know, there's a lot of different things that go into this ability to trust your intuition. So, and in theory, your intuition is being informed by all these things, even if it's happening at a subconscious level. Mm. And so I think largely, if you can avoid some sort of blindness that might come from making a stupid choice for a short-term gain, or, you know, making maybe the wrong choice or a questionable decision that might lead to some short-term game, I think your intuition is largely going to inform you to not do that choice. Like, mm. at least in my experience, like the things that I've done or the mistakes that I've had, and I guess I'm blessed in that most of them aren't much worse than what we've described here. You know, the situations that I've gotten into or the pickles I've gotten into, I wouldn't say I didn't trust my intuition in that, you know, my intuition was, hey, I've got mouths to feed, I got business to run, mm. I've got a you know, roof overhead, I need to do work, and here's an opportunity to get some. Yep. I think the longer term implications, though, would be trust your intuition as it goes. So it's not a one-time thing. It's not go, no go. It's, okay, I trust my intuition. My intuition is telling me, Yes, let's take this project. Might be a little risky, but we're going to go ahead and take this project because it will serve 
or the risk of not taking it is greater than it is. Yep. Got it. All right. So let me summarize what I take away from it, which is number one, have a process, an onboarding process. Number two, don't skip the process. And <laughs> number three is desperation or rush jobs are dangerous jobs. So pay extra attention on those. I think that would be my summary of what I take away from it. Yeah, no, and I, th I think that's dead on. I, I mean, it really is. I mean, for a lot of small business owners, especially in the creative trades, and I, I don't know why we're so prone to it, but or at least my experience in the creative trades versus other companies, you know, maybe where you're a skilled person, creative people just tend not to have these things in place, these processes mm. and things early on, especially in their early days, because a lot of the projects that they do bring on or a lot of the work that they are doing really is, hey, man, I got to eat. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, yeah. they've got that old cliche of the starving artist for a reason. You know, I mean, yeah. those guys, you know, don't plan the same way that like somebody in finance might. Well, I think, don't plan I think the, way in some, you know, the other people. the other aspect of it is that there's a fear of finance, a fear of money, a rejection of that in some cases. I know I teach in the master's in marketing program here and most of the students in the class just really, really are terrified of finance. And so mm -hmm. there's a whole nother angle about making sure that, hey, you deserve this money for the services that you've given. You need to lay out your price. You need to make sure you get paid in advance. Those types of things. For some people, particularly beginning in business, that's a hard conversation. Oh, that is so true. And God, that could be a whole podcast in and yeah. of itself. I yeah. mean, the, you know, I'm sure there are other trades, you know, not to keep beating that drum, but mm -hmm. I, you know, the, for creative people, especially, and young business people, I suppose, would, would have the same experience. But yeah, of course, money is terrifying. Mm -hmm. And you're going to this person and doing the thing that often, at least from a creative's perspective, this is just a skill I have. I'm a good designer. I know right. things. I have thoughts or ideas that are creative. You know, so, so you're going and you're doing this stuff and like, why would you pay me a lot? Like, I can just do this stuff. Like, it's no big deal. You know, and, and so there are a lot of people who do work for less than they probably deserve. Yep. I don't know a single freelancer or whomever that doesn't go out of their way to get the job done, even at mm. their own detriment. So yep. they maybe underbid a project or something and then proceed to do the job you know, just because Lord willing, we're getting it done, even if it ends up costing me money. And so, and all that I think is fear-based. It's just mm. around this idea that I'm afraid to ask for what that's worth. Exactly. You know, some of it's knowledge and some of it's, you know, acumen you develop over time. But I do think fear is a big driving factor there. That money of the customers is in their pocket and you have a right to have it in your pocket if you provided a good product or service for them. So go and get it. Last question. What is your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, you know, it's funny because we've been talking a lot about the advertising business and marketing business, but in the last three months or so, I have really started a pivot into remote work advocacy and helping people develop relationships as remote workers and, you know, maintain healthy lifestyles as a remote worker. For a lot of people, their, their conception of a, you know, remote worker, somebody who works from home or, or from a beach or wherever, is, you know, that it's some kind of vacation, that life is easy and life is good. But there are a lot of problems that come with this that are sort of unseen until you're, you know, knee deep in it. And, you know, one of the things that we're discovering is that, you know, a lot of people suffer from loneliness and other things like this, separation anxieties and, you know, all kinds of sort of mental issues that come from being alone all the time. And so we're spending a lot of work, not just advocating for the worker, but also for the people who hire the workers. We want to make sure that we're spending time developing programs and processes that help these companies 
and the people who are working for them work better together. There are certain needs that a freelancer or a remote worker has that an in-house off or in-house or an office worker may not have. And so we're using our new platform, this thing called Teammate Apart, to work in sort of the remote workspace and trying to, to make that situation better for other people. Mm. And as one aspect of that business as well, we've we've met a number of people in sort of third world or otherwise repressed or depressed societies you know, nations that are war torn and, you know, places where they can't even get healthy nutrition or good food. You know, we're meeting these freelancers and contractors and all these crazy places. And at least in my mind, remote work is one possible way for these guys specifically to find a way to elevate themselves out of an otherwise bad situation. And so one deliverable of our company is working to develop resources to help these guys get on their feet and help them, you know, with just the education and everything else that they need to, you know, be capable of finding remote work and see if they can maybe elevate and make better their situations. So my, ne- my ne- next year goal will be helping a lot of people hopefully find their way out of, you know, rough living situations, whether it's in a third world or maybe in a small town here in the States or whatever it may be. Yeah. And in fact, I haven't lived in the U.S. for a long time now, but I understand that conditions in rural and other parts of America are close to third world these days. So there's a lot of people to help out there. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. I mean, whether it's just scarcity of jobs in, at all in these mm. small communities or if it, you know, all the way down to resources and things like yeah. that, a lot of these small towns were built on mining or, you know, some mineral yeah. in the hills there or whatever it was. And, it's you know, gone. the now that all that's gone, maybe what do they do? You know, yep. and so yep. you're getting a lot of poverty, you're getting a lot of drug abuse, things like that. But there are a lot of companies that need a lot of help. And if they can figure out how to do it remotely, then that's a great avenue for these people living in small cities or, or you know, whether it's there or it's in some third world country somewhere mm-hmm. where they have their own their yep. own set of problems. Fantastic. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Ryan, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And I want to congratulate you for being one of the brave few who come on the show and turn their worst investment into their best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? I think the only thing I've got to say at the end is just people can visit my website to learn a little bit more about me. It's ryanrogar.com. That's ryan, R-O-G-H-A-A-R.com. And listeners to this program can go to ryanrogar.com slash consult for a free 30-minute business relationship assessment. Make sure they let me know that they came from this show and we'll take good care of them. So uh, yeah, that's kind Fantastic. of it. To all the listeners out there, take that opportunity. We'll put that in the show notes. So Fantastic. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.